0: Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We want to welcome you to a, one of our special program series right here in the Accessible World Auditorium. The date is Tuesday, August 9, 2011. We all long for nights of uninterrupted sleep. As we grow older, difficulty going to sleep or remaining so is a common occurrence for almost half of the blind population. Regulated by our internal body clock and determined by the amount of light in our world, restful sleep eludes us. As night after sleepless night goes by, you count up the methods you've made and are amazed at the number of unsuccessful remedies you've attempted. If reading a dull book or lying in a quiet room has not brought you the rest you long for, What other options can you try? It is an established fact that good sleep makes it easier to face the day ahead and increases your chance for a healthier life. On this special program, William Hoos, a representative from Vanda Pharmaceuticals, will discuss this troubling issue. Is it really a disorder? What percentage of the population struggle with it? Why do sleep disorders increase as we grow older? How important is life in relation to sleep? Do sleep studies or clinics turn things around? Are there some for whom no remedy is possible? Is medication the answer or is difficulty sleeping something which must be accepted? Are there aids that assist us in uh, procuring the sleep we need which do not involve medication When diagnosing a sleep disorder, what information can we record which will assist professionals in a speedy, effective solution? Are alternate therapies possible? Can a sleep disorder be entirely cured and how many are there? Does difficulty going to sleep or remaining so call for vastly different procedures in addressing this challenge? How important are dreams in a good night's rest? If you wish, you may take a survey at the below number or at the website mentioned immediately, after which may help you in a beginning determination of sleep difficulty. If you think you might be affected, you can call one eight 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 three eight nine seven zero three three. 389 7033 one eight 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 three eight nine seven zero three three, or email info at non twenty four registry dot com. Info at non twenty four registry dot com to take a sleep survey or to learn more about an ongoing clinical research study. Those interested in taking the survey online can do so by going to www.non24registry.com www.non24registry.com If you have just struggled through one more in a long period of sleepless nights or are just beginning to experience difficulty, this is a show you won't want to miss. Sleep affects how we feel and our relationships with others. Join us for a subject of vital importance to us all. <clears throat> and without further ado, I'm going to unlock this and introduce the outreach specialist for Vanda. He met our friend Rob Hansick in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, I believe, and then we've been corresponding and talking to each other since. I'm honored to present at this time Mr. William Willie Hoos of Vanda Pharmaceuticals. Willie, the microphone is yours. Um. Hi,
1: thanks, Bob. So I appreciate having everybody here, and I look forward to talking through. That was quite a list of questions, so um, I may not address all of those in directly and in full detail, so uh, any that I do not get to, please ask in the Q&A portion. So uh, kind of agenda, my plan is to try and talk for 10, 15 minutes, depending on if if there's any questions that – that come in along the way. Uh, it may take a little longer than that to get through kind of my initial comments. And then uh, I'll be open to questions for as long as anybody uh, has and, and whatever they want to ask. Uh, one comment about uh, maybe before I get started, if there's if there's any questions or comments, uh, I'll, I'll take those. But uh, again, I plan to kind of talk through the issues for 10 or 15 minutes. Uh, Bob, were there any questions or any comments that you wanted to say before I start?
0: No, this is fine. We're looking forward to it, Willie. Thank you.
1: Great. So I, I've got to remember to press the microphone on and off. So so basically, uh, what I wanted to do tonight was really talk about a sleep issue that's related to uh, the lack of light and is, is very prevalent in the totally blind uh population but i can also answer questions about other sleep issues and some of those other questions but what what i'll do is i'll i'll start and i'll talk a little about about the body clock which is something that helps regulate our sleep and then i'll talk about a little bit about what the symptoms and the problems of this disorder are and then i'll talk a little bit about why um why vanda's working on it and basically the the short answer to that is vanda has a uh, investigational medication that we're working on and doing a clinical trial to try and evaluate whether or not it works to fix this sleep problem and regulate the the body clock. So, uh, I'll start in with just talking a little bit about the body clock. So the body clock is a basically it's an internal clock that runs inside of our body in our brain. That tell roughly it controls a lot of things, but the main thing it controls for the purposes of today is it controls when we want to be awake and when we want to be asleep. So it helps us kind of stay awake throughout the day. And then when it gets to be evening, it helps say, okay, it's time to go to sleep and it helps us sleep and stay asleep through the night. Uh, And. So that body clock is pretty powerful. And so places that you may have seen, uh, you know, some already may be thinking of, of non-24 hour, this problem that I'm going to specifically talk about in the blind. But uh, some of you may already been thinking about other places where the body clock has an effect in places like when the time changes. When the time changes by an hour, your body doesn't immediately adjust to that one hour change. So, it, you know, the new time might be seven, but your body still is trying to wake you up at six. So that's an example where the body clock's pretty powerful and it keeps that, that time. Another is jet lag uh, or shift work. But jet lag, if anybody's ever traveled a few time zones, you know that your body kind of stays in the old time zone for a while. So that's just – I'm saying that just to kind of give an example of how strong the body clock is. Um, the next thing I'm going to do is I'm going to divert a little bit to an example of a watch. And I'm going to use that as an as a analogy for how our body clocks work. And so if you think of a watch that runs a little bit slow or a little bit fast and what it would take to keep it functional and working right. So if you think of a wristwatch, and let's say that that wristwatch was off by a half an hour, and I'm picking that half an hour, even though for a watch, that would be pretty extreme. Most watches today are pretty accurate and they keep time within a few seconds a day. But think of a watch that's off by a half hour every day. So it runs slow. It runs at 24 and a half hours. And I'm picking that for a reason because that's related to our body clock. But so let's say that watch is running 24 and a half hours. Um, you would wake up tomorrow. You're, you set your watch today. Tomorrow you'd wake up, and even though it would be eight o'clock on the real time, the watch would say 7:30 because it's fallen a half hour between, behind. It takes another 30 minutes for it to get to the eight o'clock on that watch. So what would you do to, to fix that? You would just take the little dial out, wind it forward. To eight o'clock and go about your day for the next day and it would get progressively off throughout the day now think of the example of that watch but instead of you wake up one morning and that dial has broken so it says 7 30 you want to remove it to eight o'clock but there's no dial to adjust it so what happens you can't adjust it it stays at 7 30 and by the next day it says seven o'clock when it's really eight o'clock and the next day it says 6.30. And every day it progressively gets more and more off by a half hour each day. Um, and, you know, when it's off by a couple hours, you can probably run your day that way, and it's not that bad. But by the time it gets to be 6 or 8 or 10 or 12 hours off, uh, and 12 hours is a bad one because most watches don't keep the 24-hour time. So let's use a 6-hour where it's completely off from where it's supposed to be. It starts to become closer to useless because you don't know what time it really is supposed to be. So our body clocks are actually that same way. So sighted, blind, everyone has a body clock and most people's body clock is not perfect at 24 hours. The average in the population is actually almost 24 hours and 15 minutes. So that means naturally every day the average body clock is trying to move by 15 minutes. But that's an average so a lot of people are 24 and a half or even 25 hours which means every day that the body clock is trying to move by up to an hour in some people and so just like that watch it would try to move but just like with the watch you can reset that clock every day and the way that we reset the clock in the body is with light and so it's the light we receive every morning and every evening that gives us that resetting signal And so now I think you can see where a problem could emerge in those who are totally blind because that resetting signal is similar to the dial that can't reset the the watch anymore. And so every day you're basically at the mercy of where your body clock is trying to take you. And so you start off, you're pretty much okay for one day. The next day, if you're someone who has a a 24-and-a-half-hour body clock, You move a half hour the next day an hour next day an hour and a half is how far off you are from the day so again you know you get off by a couple hours it's kind of like going from new york to chicago i mean or new york to la you're off by a few hours from those time zones it's not the end of the world you just sleep a little earlier or sleep or wake up a little earlier but then it keeps going. And pretty soon it's the equivalent of your body's trying to be in Europe or in Asia while you're trying to still live on a city in the, in the U S and, and your body's telling you to be awake and it's the middle of the night, your body's telling you to be asleep and it's the middle of the day. And that's what this problem is. So that it's, it it's actually, it's has a name, it's a sleep disorder and it's called non 24 hour sleep wake disorder Um, I'm not going to use that term a lot, but basically it means that your body clock is running at a speed that's not 24 hours. And um, the symptoms are that you go through periods where sleep is actually relatively good and normal, and you go through periods where your body is a little off and sleep's a little disrupted, and then you go through periods where it's really off and the, there's strong urges to nap during the day when your body's telling you it's the middle of the night, and then you get around to the evening and in the middle of the night, and the body's saying, wake up, it's the middle of the day, and you're wide awake all night. And the severity of these symptoms vary. Um, and the other thing is, unfortunately, those symptoms of sleepiness during the day and wide awake at night have some overlap with people describing insomnia or even depression. So a lot of times what happens is the awareness in the community, the blind community as well as awareness, in the medical community are both relatively low. And that's one of the reasons that I'm out talking like this is to try and help spread the word and, and get the awareness up. But in the medical community, the awareness is low. So you go into the doctor, you tell them these symptoms and they say, oh, you need a sleeping pill, you have insomnia, or you need a antidepressant, you're depressed. And often it's misdiagnosed that way. And you know, we want people to be aware that this is out there and it's a it's a real thing. And I can talk more about the science if you like. But the science is actually amazingly strong about showing how light affects the body clock how the body clock runs at a speed that's not 24 hours and also about exactly which cells in the eyes affect the body clock all of that science has been really well documented um, in animals and in humans both at harvard And at Oregon Health Sciences are the two places that have done most of this research. So uh, the science is really strong. Uh, The problem is unrecognized uh, in a lot of medical fields as well as in the blind community. And so people are getting misdiagnosed, they're just being told to deal with it, or they're getting, you know, they're being told they have insomnia or depression. So that's kind of the the problem out there. Um, And you know, when I when I'm out talking in the community, you know, I get some people kind of shaking their head, like, I don't believe this. It doesn't sound right. You know, everybody has sleep problems. And that's true. A lot of people have sleep problems. Um, but then I also have people shaking their head, like, finally, somebody understands me. You know, I've been misdiagnosed, or I've just been dealing with this, or I've been like this since I was a kid. And my parents always struggled, then, and I've continued as an adult. Um so, so I don't know whether the, the group here is, some of this is resonating. I look forward to the questions and comments once I kind of wrap up talking. But in general, um, you know, for people who are suffering, this resonates and this is a big problem. And it's a very disturbing part of life because if you have trouble staying awake for periods and have trouble sleeping, it really does start to affect all aspects of your life. And it makes it hard to have a job or, you know, do a good job at your job or have a good social life. Um, I did a radio show and a gentleman called in and started talking about how, you know, he, he actually had been formally diagnosed with this and his, his body clock ran at about that 24 and a half uh, hours. And he said that his wife would make their social schedule around the periods where his body clock was supposed to be okay. So with a with a, if that example, a half hour uh, off every day, it means that every 48 days your body marches all the way around the 24-hour clock. And so you'll go through several weeks where you're relatively well aligned and you can have a social and work life. And then you go through a couple weeks on the other side where it's really bad. And then kind of there's a middle period. So uh, maybe some of that's resonating. Uh, some of the statistics are that uh, for those who are totally blind, it's between 50 and 80 percent of those who uh, are have some form of this and some level of it. So it's, it's pretty, you know, while it's a rare disorder in the general population, in those who are totally blind, uh, it's pretty significant Uh, and basically you know the estimates are it's almost everyone who's totally blind has some form of this unless one of two things happens either they have they kind of got lucky and their body clock is really close to 24 hours or they um, they still have some of the light function resetting the clock even though they don't have Uh, vision and and sensible vision. And that is possible. And and that discovery was actually made by some of the work at Harvard and at Oregon Health, where they said there's some blind individuals who seem to still be responding to light, even though they don't uh, see the light. And so that actually spurs some other scientists to find a new set of cells that are in the eye that are not related to vision, but are related to the body clock. So that may be a little too deep in the science, but it's an interesting place to go if people have questions. Um, So 50 to 80% uh, have it. And um, because of that, Vanda has looked and said, you know, this is a real problem and we've been uh, developing a drug for a number of years and done some different trials on insomnia and other things but realize that the drug is designed to work by moving the, the body clock and basically resetting the body clock instead of uh, using light to do that when light's not available. And so uh, the, the, the investigational medication is called Tazimeltian, and it's in clinical trials right now in the phase three clinical trials, which are the last trials to be done before we submit to the FDA. Uh, we have about 25 sites around the country that are doing this study, uh, and so it's in most of the major cities. We provide all the transportation to get to the to the offices to for the medical exams. Everything else is done in the home, um, and I can answer questions. People who are, participate are compensated for being in it, and the numbers that are listed in the on the bulletin board here. Uh, the 800, The 888 number as well as the website is where you can go to get started in the process of the clinical trial. Uh, basically, uh, the first thing we have uh, folks do is they actually call Vanda and just take uh, a real brief uh, sleep survey that helps us understand who's out there. And then if if you're in or at, we actually donate $25 to ACB, uh, and NFB, or BVA, whichever you specify, uh, for for those who take that survey, and then people who are interested in being in the actual clinical trial of the investigational uh, medication will will get their name will get sent to one of those 25 sites, and the doctors at those sites will take you through the rest of the diagnostic process, and then the 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 therapy section of the study. So, um, you know, kind of in summary, this is a is a sleep problem related to the body clock and uh, and total blindness where the lack of light causes the body clock to basically move every day at its natural cycle because it can't be reset. Uh, it's underdiagnosed it, uh, by the medical community and the awareness is fairly low in the blind community. Uh, we're out trying to fix that. So the things that, that I'm asking for tonight is one, to answer all your questions, make sure that everybody's comfortable to kind of go out and help us spread the word to others. You may know that this is real, that they can learn more about it and they can also potentially participate in a clinical trial. Cause that's another thing that we're obviously trying to do is we can't get this drug to market unless we get the clinical trial um, completed and, you know, show that uh, that the drug does work and get through the rest of the FDA process. So there's, uh, we're doing the, the trial on over a hundred people. Um, so it's a real large trial compared to a lot of the stuff that's been done in the past and we hope that that'll demonstrate fairly definitively that uh, that, that the drug works in this and it's understanding how you know the timing of the dose and the, the amount of the dose and how to use the drug and and have it as a, as a drug that's available So, I think I'll stop there. That's about 15 or so minutes. And I'll take any questions about the the disorder, about other sleep problems, about the science, about uh, the clinical trial, anything anybody would like to talk through.
0: Okay. Well, again, let me say, if you don't have a microphone and you have a question, hit F8 write your question don't worry about your name it pops up there write your question and enter and susan will watch that I, this group the size of it and i know a lot of you people would we'll just let you hit the control key and if we want to make sure everyone who has a question has had the opportunity. Let me uh, say one thing and ask uh, Willie. I call him Willie because I've known him now <laughs> uh, to respond. Uh, if someone says I'm taking the study and I get dizzy or I get a rash, I want you to you know tell me why. Remember, uh, Willie is not a doctor. He doesn't claim to be. There's a couple of other instances, caveats, and let me let uh, Willie comment on that because I don't think he brought them up, and we want to be on the record and be fair to you too. So, Willie, I think I've got one of them. That you were concerned about was there a couple others? Let's uh, we'll back off and let you speak here.
1: So I think um, so. So what uh, what Bob's referring to is that if anyone on the phone here happens to be in our clinical trial already, um, first of all, thank you for participating. But secondly, the you know the trial is a blinded uh, study you know, where the, the people in the study. Uh, have confidentiality and and no one knows whether they're on the real drug or they're on a placebo sugar pill and so you know any side effects or anything like that uh, is just not something that is supposed to be discussed directly with the company. It's supposed to be discussed with the doctors running the study, and that's just a standard FDA kind of rules and so I just wanted to say that and then the only other thing is I'm sure that somebody has in their mind is how much compensation are you paid for being in the study. And what I can say is that that you do receive compensation for the time and effort. And there's a fair amount of time and effort that it takes to be in the study. Um, And and you're fairly compensated for that. Um, But the specific dollar amounts is something that the FDA and the ethics boards just don't let the company itself talk about. And you have to talk about that with the doctor. So those are the the two main things. Uh, Everything else I can I can I can for the most part talk about um, one thing I was going to say is looking at the questions. There was a I'll start off by by answering one question. I'll turn the mic back. Um, is two things around you know? Do sleep studies turn things? Do sleep clinics turn things around? And does this increase as we grow older? So you know a sleep study is something, it's often used to diagnose sleep apnea more so than diagnose something like uh, this non-24 hour. So, you know, if you go in and you think you have this disorder and the first thing they say is we want to do a sleep study, you know, you want to make sure you're talking with the sleep doctor about the possibility that's non-24 hour and what is it that the sleep study is going to tell us about that. Um, so that's just, that's one thing around sleep clinics. And then the, the question about, Do sleep disorders increase as we grow older? And in general, you know, the quality of our sleep does decrease as we age. Um, And there's some things that are related to this problem and some that aren't. So I won't cover everything, but, you know, certainly as we age, the need for sleep maybe decreases a little, the depth and quality goes down a little. But when it comes specifically to the body clock and these and this disorder, it also probably increases in severity as we age because When we're young, uh, and by young I mean teens and even into the 20s, the body clock is not as strong. So that signal of when to be awake and when to be asleep is still there, but you might be able to just kind of fight through it and sleep anyways. Even though you might be tired when when you're off cycle, you can probably still sleep relatively well. Whereas when you get into your 30s and 40s and certainly beyond – the body clock starts to kind of have a tighter hold on when you can wake and when you can sleep. So people who travel a lot, jet lag gets worse as you age, but uh, the time change gets more severe on people as, as we age, but so does the non-24-hour probably. The sci- you know, Because it's a small disorder and there hasn't been huge studies on it, it's not known specifically in non-24-hour that it gets more severe as we age, but anecdotally I've heard people describe that, and it matches with the science and the understanding that the body clock takes a tighter hold on when you can sleep and when you can't as we age.
0: Okay, uh, who, who has the first question? Just uh, It's kind of queuing up like you're at a bank. Hold the control key down, and when someone's done, always let the speaker answer, but then uh, come in again. But we'll make sure all of you who want to ask questions get the opportunity. So who seeks the floor first?
2: My name is John Leonard, and um, this is very, very interesting to me because I've had this problem most of my life, if not my whole life, really. Um, my question is: How risky is it? Um, I'm not a young person. Well, I'm not an old. Well, I'm 71 years old, and. Um, and if possible, I would like to try to participate in the study. But then I was wondering, how risky is this um, drug? I suppose I would not be put on the placebo, but on the regular drug. It's a little scary.
1: So, so I guess um, there's a couple ways I can answer it. The first I'll say is that the age range for inclusion in the study is 18 to 75. So from that that piece alone, you're definitely uh, eligible for being in the study. There are other some medications and such that, you know, are excluded. So that's those are discussions to have with the doctor in the study and your and your own physician. Um, when it comes to the risk of the drug, you know, because the drug is not on the market yet and it's still under investigation, you know, the, the, the answer that I as a company representative have to say is that the safety and efficacy are still under evaluation. So I can't say that it's safe or that it's not safe. Um, but what I will say is that uh, you that's exactly the topic to discuss with the doctors who are running the study. And, and they can walk through the other studies that have been done, what side effects have been seen, uh, and uh, and that's just really the best way to make the decision. And you know, I, I understand completely that it's a it's a it's it's not an easy decision because you know there's some someone has to be some of the first to take the drug. You know, I, I obviously there's a lot of steps. It's not like this is the first. You know that the drug was just discovered in a lab a couple months ago and it's now being tested in this trial it's been under investigation for probably 10 years or actually a little more, I believe, you know, they do the studies in animals and then they do initial smaller studies in, uh, in people before getting to this stage of the study. And that's the the details of that are what the doctors can walk you through. Um, But as a company representative before it's on the market, that's really the extent of what I can say. Um, And it's obviously, you know, you can be a part, you can, you can, you can consider being part of the study. You can obviously drop out at any time if you're uncomfortable with anything. Um, the first month of the study is actually a formal diagnosis. So that's one of the benefits of being in the study is uh, that you get to get formally diagnosed and know that this is a problem that you're suffering from. And then uh, the, the next part of the study is where you take either the drug or the placebo sugar pill and, um, and help evaluate and get the product to market you know the only other thing is that i can say is that you know we need to get there's a therapy needed by the community for this and um so you know we do need people to 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 make that informed decision uh about being in the study
2: bob i see that howard has written here that he has a question and i don't know whether he has a mic or not so can we see whether he has a mic or not and if he doesn't he can text chat it to me
3: if you get the sleep study, or if you get the sleep study, is
4: it? And then I should tell them when you get sleep study besides your sleeping habits.
0: We get that, uh, Willie and Susan. Uh, yeah, we can. We, the next time we'll back off. Whoever, who was it that uh, wanted to ask a question? But this sound like Lori over here. Uh, Willie, did you get that? Okay. So I, didn't, I couldn't really
1: get all of that question. It was something about sleep studies, but then it cut out.
0: But try it again, please? I think it was Laurie, but I'm not sure.
4: If you get a sleep study, besides telling them your sleeping habits, what should you tell them to get the best results? And should
3: you get a sleep study?
1: So, so a sleep study, you know, traditional when we say sleep study, because some people call this a sleep study, this clinical trial, but usually when people are referring to a sleep study, they're talking about going into a lab, getting hooked up with all the wires and cords to get evaluated for sleep apnea. And sleep apnea is where you stop breathing during the night and that causes you never to get a full, deep, restful night of sleep. Uh, It's often associated with with obesity because as as we gain weight, our neck kind of gets heavier and that makes it more likely that the airway closes during the night. Um, So, the traditional sleep study, you know, if there's a possibility that you have something like sleep apnea in addition to the non-24-hour, the sleep study can help kind of disentangle those and make sure they both get treated because you could have both and need to have both treated. But for the non-24-hour specifically, if you know, if you're totally blind and you have periods of good and periods of bad sleep, um, or even if those periods aren't real recognizable, that you have those times where you feel like you're kind of flip-flopped and wide awake during the night but really tired during the day and it just doesn't seem it seems more than it should be but then there's periods where it's better Um, if those are the symptoms and you're totally blind then you know because it's 50 to 80 percent likely that this is an underlying problem the sleep study is not a diagnostic for this right now there is no um clinically used formal diagnostic Uh, Usually what they do is try to talk through a sleep, uh, try and do a a clinical exam and ask about your sleep habits. They may ask you to keep a sleep diary because one thing that does happen is over a couple of months of keeping a sleep diary, you can start to see that there's periods of good and periods of bad because, you know, and the reason for a diary is because it's hard to remember back too far in your sleep. And, you know, I I mean, if I asked everybody, how did everybody sleep last Thursday? You know, I couldn't remember. I know I've had some good nights and some bad nights, but it's hard to remember a specific day. So that's where a sleep diary can be really helpful. And, you know, a sleep diary can be as simple as what time did you go to bed? What time did you wake up? Did you... Did you have a good night's sleep or did you wake up a lot during the night? And then how did you do during the day? Did you take naps? Did you have urges to nap or not? And that's kind of a simple sleep diary. So, so from a formal diagnosis, a sleep study in the lab is not really directly related to the non 24 hour. um, But it could be something that a doctor finds useful as they try to better understand. Uh, When it comes to a formal diagnosis for non-24 hours, Sleep Dyer is really about as good as they have right now. It's one of the things that Vanda is also working on is to help develop tools for the physicians to use to more formally diagnose it. And then when it comes to the clinical trial, we do do a a more involved uh, formal diagnosis where over the course of a month, each week, we take samples to measure exactly where your body clock is. And so it's one of the things that's amazing about how powerful the body clock is, is you can look at those patterns in someone who has this problem, and we can calculate, you know, anybody who's into statistics, we can calculate with a really high um, confidence interval exactly how long somebody's body clock is. So in other words, if we take it one weekend and it says your body clock's currently at midnight, and we take it the next week, and it says your body clock's now at seven a.m. That means the body's move body clock's moving an hour every day. Somebody whose body clock moves fifty three minutes, they move you know fifty three minutes times seven uh, over the course of seven days, and it's pretty. It, you know, to me, it's one of those things that's just you know, if, if you're living it, you you see it. But when you when you see it in the in the data as well, it's. Uh, it's 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 one of those kind of powerful things about how our bodies work.
0: Okay, great. Let, let's see if Howard, I see the note up there, if he has a mic here. So back away and let him try, and then we'll, we'll get others. Howard, do you have a microphone there? Okay, we're not hearing you. Write your question up there, hit F8, write your question and enter, and we'll see it. Okay, next question,
5: please. Pete DeVasto here. Um, I am one of the people that Willie mentioned at the beginning who um, I had a problem where I would go to sleep on time, but I'd wake up in the middle of the night and I needed something to help me get through the rest of the night, so my doctor prescribed a sleeping pill and he said, oh, my patients use it for months at a time and so just feel free to do it. Well, five weeks later was a week before the presentation in Reno. And it just totally did a number on me. Um, I wound up purging myself of that medication. And then my wife found an over-the-counter drug at one of our local pharmacies that had melatonin in it. It's, uh, they called it an artificial natural sleeping aid. I'm sorry, it was a natural sleeping aid. It uh, contained, I think, like one and a half milligrams of melatonin. i have taken it for about a week, and I feel like a totally new person. My question is, Willie, are you at liberty to talk a little bit more about the drug? Does it contain melatonin or is it something similar? Um, Do you have any thoughts about using melatonin as a possible um, remedy for the situation? Unfortunately, Bob mentioned it so graciously earlier about the good things I'm doing for Adobe. I really don't have the time to go through the sleep study much as I would like to. Um, but I was just looking for any thoughts you might have about the melatonin uh, aspect of it and if you could talk about the drug a little bit.
1: So some really good questions. Um, I'll tell you what, I'm gonna, I'll start with the kind of general sleeping pill comment and how it overlays with this problem. And then I'll, I'll talk a little bit about melatonin and the, this drug specifically and how it relates to melatonin. Uh, so, so the first is just on sleeping pills. And, you know, one of the issues with sleeping pills is that they basically help you, they kind of knock you out and help you sleep. And so if you're thinking about this sleep problem where you're in that period where your body's telling you to be awake during the night and then be asleep during the day, the sleeping pills in that period can actually probably help you get the sleep. But then when you wake up, you've slept, but it's still the afternoon comes around and it's still 2 o'clock in the morning in your body. And even if you've had a solid night's sleep, your body's still saying it's not time to be functioning. And that's where some of the other things that the body clock controls, like your insulin uh, sensitivity, your blood pressure, your digestive system, all of those things start to kick in, and those are kind of turned off in the nighttime in the body. So even if you've kind of gotten the sleep, you're still not aligned with The rest of the day and can still have problems. So that's one of the reasons where, you know, sleeping pills kind of mask. Some of the symptoms may help you get through some of the sleep, but they're really not the right solution. So for the right solution, it's more can you do something to keep the body clock aligned? So it's it's nighttime in your body during nighttime in your life. and, and vice versa so that's more what uh, tazimeltian the the investigational uh, medication that we're, we're testing here um, and it's it is what's called a, a melatonin agonist meaning that it acts on the melatonin receptors in the body um, so, you know, a natural question is well is melatonin the right solution. And um, you know, the specifics of that you can definitely talk about with the doctor, but some of the challenges with melatonin is there's been some small studies that that have looked at that, but there haven't been the large studies like the FDA requires to say is the product safe and effective for treating this. So in other words, you know, what's the dose, what's the time of that dose, what's the purity in the manufacturing process because melatonin is it's a natural product that's sold in the health food stores, you know, exactly what's in it and exactly what dose is the right dose to get the effect. You know, there's been some conflicting studies about dose, for example. So those are some of the the challenges with melatonin that why Vanda believes that going through the FDA process more formally and getting the first approved uh, drug for treating this problem is is really the right way to go. So I don't know if that completely answers your question. Um, the the final thing that I'll, I'll say, uh, you, know, you said you're busy with work and such. You know what I will say is that the study requires there's a there's a fairly long visit the first day of the trial where you have to go in for a few hours and the longest part about that is actually going through the informed consent process that's that's mandated by the. And you know, and regulated by the FDA and our ethics boards to make sure that we're conducting the trial ethically and safely. And so you you review all of those documents and then go through a full exam. Then everything else is in the home, um, and uh, there's a once a month visit back into the doctor's office that's just for an hour or so. So we provide the transportation. Uh, and most of our places are pretty flexible. So you know if you've got work conflicts, they can possibly do it on a Saturday or do it pretty early. Um, so you know, even if over the you know over the course of the study, which all together, you know, with the diagnosis of about a month period and then the six months of taking the drug or a placebo, it's six, seven, eight months total, yeah, you know, it's not it's a once a month visit. And other than that, it's, it's, it's taking the drug at home and calling into a phone system for a quick two-minute sleep diary. So it's not a, a huge commitment that necessarily gets in the way of work, but we absolutely understand that it, it doesn't work for everyone. Um, I'll go ahead and also answer that, is it available in Canada? So the study is being done in about 25 sites in the U.S. It's not being done in Canada. There are actually a couple uh, sites in Germany as well, but not in Canada.
0: Okay, Martin Nelson. We're going to back away. He's unable to get a mic, and he has a question here, he says up here. Martin, you're on.
6: Okay, thank you, Bob. Um, I have some doubts about distinguishing between blind and not blind. Let me give you a specific example myself. Um, I'm 69 years old. I've been totally blind almost all my life. My mother was a sighted person, and she is, She described the symptoms that she had when she was elderly, which are the same symptoms that I have now. That is to say, waking up during the night, not being able to sleep, she would walk around during the house during the night, and then during the day she would fall asleep. I don't walk around because I might bump into the walls or something, but I tend to read a lot at night when I wake up and can't fall back to sleep. And then during the day... If I'm lying down and listen to a newscast, I end up sleeping through it. Part of what I contribute this to be is since I'm retired and not very active, I thought that might be part of the problem. But the question I have basically is, since my mother, who was sighted, had the same symptoms that I have, being blind, I question whether you can distinguish, you know, between the group of blind people and the and the and the rest of the. Non-blind population with regard to, you know, to the symptoms. And one last quick question is: Will this medicine be directed only to the blind community, basically, or is it meant to be used by the public in general?
1: So, so Martin, um, all all very good questions. So, a couple a couple comments. So, as far as the overlap with symptoms. You know, I think I, I mentioned a little bit that as we age, all kinds of things happen with sleep, and that kind of force of staying asleep through the whole night definitely gets weaker as we age. So that waking up in the middle of the night um, and being up is is pretty common as we age, um, sighted or not. Um, and same with you know, if you're if you don't get full nights of sleep, then you have some tiredness during the day. I think the distinguishing it. Uh, I'll I'll comment two ways on that. One, uh, because your mom had the same thing and, you know, there's a chance that this just age-related changes in sleep. Um, But if you've had those for longer or if there's kind of periods that are better than others, then those are big potential signs that it could be something else, you know. And again, for those who are totally blind, um, there's, you know, a very high chance that it's related to this body clock issue. Um, So that's kind of the more general answer. The the specific answer on distinguishing it is that's one of the nice parts about the study. I talked about that first month being a formal diagnosis where we we measure where the body clock is each week for a month. Um, And so that uh, process tells us. And so, you know, if we were to to measure – you know, if we were to measure measured your mother, we would have measured each week and her body clock would have been at the same place each week because light was keeping her aligned. Whereas, you know, if it's someone who's totally blind measuring the same thing each week, there's a chance that it's not moving. And, you know, it, there's a, a significant number of people in our study who get to the screening part and end up not having non-tw- not having the, the 24-hour Uh, the non-24-hour sleep-wake disorder, they have something else that's causing their sleep problems, but their body clock's not moving. And so that's, you know, kind of getting an answer once and for all is one nice part about being in the study. Um, So, you know, summary, the symptoms definitely uh, can overlap, and that's one of the the challenges with the medical community in getting the diagnosis right. But when it is from this cause, there's a lot higher chance that we can fix it with, the right treatment that addresses the problem versus just trying to do things that mask
0: it. Okay. Uh, Margaret Roman is up there.
3: Thank you. Um, Excellent presentation. Um, I have a question. um, This idea of the sleep journal or sleep diary has always been a little confusing to me when I think about it because how how do you distinguish or are you expected to be able to distinguish between um, sort of unexplained awakening during the night versus, um, you know, something like hearing a noise outside or your partner needing a glass of water or what have you, where there's an actual, you know, cause as to what might have awakened you. In other words, I guess, what, what and I realize this is very specific, but I mean, what, what are they really looking for in a sleep diary besides when you, you know, think or try to go to sleep and when you woke up? Thank you.
1: So I'll try to give a brief answer there. I see some questions piling up. Um, in general, the the diary just tries to show: uh, is there some pattern to the awakenings and the napping, the awakenings during the night and the napping during the day? Um, what I'll say specifically: the kinds of things that are different when somebody has this problem than when it's just someone that has is awoken by a partner or by noises is that they'll that when someone has this depending on how fast their clock is moving they'll have some time where you know maybe they're having some awakenings from noise and others but then all of a sudden they'll enter this period where there's a few days or even longer in some where instead of saying you know I got woken by the dog and I was up for a half hour an hour and I did some reading and then I went back to sleep for a couple hours they'll say you know I woke up at 3 And I felt like it was the middle of the day and I just stayed up the rest of the night and went on with my morning when morning came. That's the kind of stuff that starts to happen. And again, that's the more extreme, but you see those kind of more extreme days. And then you see, you know, back to just kind of the more routine awakenings where something goes wrong. And then likewise, in those same periods, there's periods where they say, you know, I, I was just going along and the mid-morning hit or mid-afternoon hit, and all of a sudden I just felt like I needed to be asleep. And I took a three-hour nap, not a short little, not off for a half hour. So, again, I'm, I'm kind of listing some of the extremes, and it's not always that, um, that severe. But those are some of the differences that you start to see in the sleep diaries. But at the same time, um, you know, the, the sleep diaries are not a perfect diagnosis for this, and that's where Vanda – Uh, is working on having a better tool for the doctors to use to to distinguish that. And that's something that we're doing in the study in a lot more detail.
0: Okay. And uh, let me say quickly that Pete says that if he got the placebo, he would really be in trouble working and so forth. When he's the guy who talked earlier about he worked and he couldn't go to the study and that was a worry. But anyway, okay. We're trying to see these questions up here and uh, some of the guys know the old rules and it's just, We'll do these, and then we'll make sure that everyone's had a chance. Pat Seed, you're next, please. Pat, are you there? Okay, Marsha Moses.
3: Um, <clears throat> good evening, uh, Willie and everybody. Um, I actually started the study, and I this was back in November, and... Uh, I went through the questionnaire and and read the uh, literature and everything. Uh, The thing is, is uh, uh, my liver enzymes were too high, and Vanda decided that, I guess, they weren't going to uh, continue with this. This was in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And I haven't spoken with uh, the coordinator of the study at that particular point since (laughs) December, of uh, 2010, I'm just wondering if there's any way I can get back into the study, or if Vanda has dropped me. Actually, uh, Willie, I do have your cell phone number, which was provided to me uh, by someone from Boston. Uh, what uh, what do I need to do?
1: So again, this is in that gray area of people who potentially were in the study that that. Um, I need, as a company representative, I need to minimize the interaction. But let me just ask one clarifying question. So did you, you, the liver enzyme, you you didn't take, you hadn't started into taking the drug. That was in the initial evaluation. Is that right?
3: Yep, that is correct.
1: I'll do is I'll just try to explain a little of kind of the reasons why that stuff is designed in the study. So this isn't anything specific with with your scenario. Um, so one of the in that first medical exam, they do check a bunch of different blood work to look for enzyme and liver and kidney function and other things. And the reason is whenever a drug's in this evaluation phase, one of the things that the fDA is always worried about is does it have a chance of making people sick in the liver or the the kidneys because those are the things that that metabolize the drug, and so if the liver enzymes are elevated, you know sometimes that can just be from having a cold, sometimes it can be an indication of of a of a disease, and what what you can't have. In the initial studies, is kind of those confounders that tell you so if at the end of the study you had liver issues, is it because you already had them and they just progressed during the study, or is it something that the drug caused? And so that's the reason why those things are exclusionary at the beginning. So the thing that I don't have a specific answer to for you is that if your liver enzymes are ever, ever elevated, you know, can you nine months later now go back and be reevaluated, and if they're normal now, um, still be considered for the study? I don't know the answer to that, but that's definitely worth calling uh, the 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 place that you originally were were talking with, and and if they are allowed to reevaluate you. To, to do that because, you know, I, I do believe that some, some of the levels that are exclusionary can be transient and not indicative of a disease. So um, that may be worth doing, but again, I don't, I, it may be once it's been tested that way, it's excluded. I just, I don't know those rules. And I, um, but I, I think in general, I'm trying to answer the, the from the, you know, kind of the, the background on the study versus anything specific with your, with your case.
0: Okay, uh, Carla Todd. Hi. A wonderful
2: presentation. I'm very interested in the study. I did the initial interview over the phone. I haven't heard anything back, but it's only been a week. Um, you may or may not be able to answer this question. It, would the drug interfere with any other medications that we take? Um, I mean, I'm not diabetic or anything like that, but uh, like, uh, you know, cholesterol, I don't have high cholesterol, but to keep it even, I was on the high lo- um, high normal uh, side of it, and I do take some pain medication. Um, do you have any idea if that might Interfere with this medication, your medication?
1: Sure. So you know, we, we get questions around other medications and stuff. Uh, you know, the specific answer is definitely need to talk with the doctors running the study. Um, with the things that you mentioned, uh, you know, for for diabetes, for cholesterol, uh, most of the drugs that are for common, you know, things that a lot of people have, they're they're allowed in the study as long as. The controls relatively steady, uh, uh, relatively stable in the person. So, um, those are definitely things that there's a couple of exclusions definitely that um, that the study sites can talk with you about. But in general, as long as if you're on other medications, but whatever those medications are for are relatively stable and the projection is you would stay on them through the study, then then it's okay. The pain medications, depending on exactly what pain medications and how often you're taking them and such, that's one that, that can sometimes be an issue. And the reason is because the pain medications, you know, unfortunately, some people end up using pain medications um that you know the pain medications can affect alertness and sleep, so that's a confounder that sometimes is excluded. So again, any specifics are best talked about with the doctor in the study, and I encourage anybody that's you know that's interested and thinks this may be affecting them to call, talk with the doctor about it because uh, you know even if this study doesn't uh, you know you're not eligible for this study, there may be another study that we do that has broader criteria as we get closer to market that you still may be eligible for. So being kind of in contact with the doctors and being on the, the, the survey list um, helps for future studies as well.
0: Okay, Walt Kramer.
6: Thank you, Bob, and good evening, Willie. I wondered if I might ask you to elaborate a little bit on this business of the effect Of light and the effect of I guess not being able to process light as we should or as I should as a totally blind person I'm just a a bit curious as to I'm not meaning to imply that I don't believe it I just don't fully understand why it is such an issue because it seems to me that if I go outside I'm being exposed to as much light as anyone else Surely there's some clarification that you could offer.
1: Sure, absolutely. And, you know, you'll have to – I have to go a little more technical to, to get into some of the answers, but I'll take a couple minutes and do that because uh, I think it's a really important thing. And, you know, that question of is this really real, can I get it some other way um, is, is very common. So – basically this is where some of the research has been done and it's kind of nice. I mean, this is a great example of where the basic research that's funded by NIH and other places for the last 20 years has given us enough understanding that we now can go after developing therapies for it. And so the research that they've done, you know, it, it goes all the way back to putting sighted individuals in caves where they don't get light and seeing that they're, sleep patterns and you basically put people in caves they didn't give them light for several months and they watched what time do you want to go to bed and wake up every day naturally and they saw it started to drift by some people drift by 15 minutes and some people drift by an hour and those are some of the initial signals Um, they've then gotten much more sophisticated with how they do the studies and they do various levels of blocking light and, you know, back in the 90s, somebody uh, did some research and said they, they figured out that you could give light behind the knee and give the same effect. And then that's been tried to be reproduced and has been pretty definitively shown to not be true. Um, and then they've, they've kind of dissected how the eye works. And, you know, so we have rods and cones and then those rods and cones go through another layer of special cells that basically receive the light signal from the cones and then send the signal on to the different parts of the brain. And they've mapped out where those signals go in the brain um, using a bunch of pretty you know high-tech scientific techniques in both animals and in, in humans. And they've shown that most of the cells in the eye, 99% of them, go to the visual cortex and the part that controls vision. But there's a small number, about 1% of the cells, that goes to another part of the brain. And that part of the brain is where the body clock actually operates. So in some animals, they destroy that part of the brain and the body clock stops working. Um, But in that part of the brain, where those 1% of cells go, those 1% of cells uh, go there, and they provide that resetting signal to basically make up for the fact that that little part of the brain that that is that is the body clock um, runs at slightly off speed so it 's kind of a you know you get a imperfect clock and then you get a signal um, to to make up for that imperfection and so um, they've then done the studies to show that when that one percent of cells isn 't working the body clock doesn't receive the signal. And then they've further shown that that 1% of those cells, they're actually different than the other 99%, not just in where they connect to the brain, but also how they respond to light. So those cells respond to light themselves instead of relying exclusively on the rods and cones to give them the light signal. So that 1%, they call them um, photosensitive and the type of cell is the ganglion cell. So it's the, the photosensitive ganglion cells are these ones that talk directly with the body clock. Um, and so that's why, you know, there are a few people who um, they've found that are totally blind from a vision perspective, but those cells are still working and helping keeping the clock aligned. And that's where you may have heard stories. And this is actually one of the, the first people that I met that has this disorder. She didn't develop it until she had her eyes removed when she was a teenager. So she didn't have any particularly usable vision, but they took out her eyes and then her sleep problems started. So, you know, those are the kinds of things that that have been done to show that it is going through the eyes. And so if that signal's not working, going out in the sunlight in the day, it's still not getting the signal to where it needs to to reset
0: the clock. That is fascinating. Okay, Pat Seed's the last name. I see she's trying again, so let's see if Pat's here, please.
4: Okay, let's try the mic this time. Is it working? Yes. Okay, this is a a continuation of what you were just talking about. Um, I myself have been totally blind all my life. I have light perception, but um, I cannot tell, for instance... Whether the light is on in a room or not, um, sometimes I can tell when it's not sunny. Um, you know, the sun is pretty powerful, and that kind of thing. So, what I'm what I'm asking is, how much is totally blind, and and when does light perception, you know, come into the picture and not affect your body clock and is there anything that you can do the second question is is there anything that you can do to um have light or um help your clock get back on the right road because i'm inside most of the time so i was wondering about that
1: so, so there's definitely a couple questions in there. Um, the first one is probably you touched on the one place where the science is least well understood, and that is how much of the light do you have to lose before this becomes a problem? And the answer to that is not exactly known. The speculation on it is probably that you have to – it varies by person. So if somebody's off by uh, 30 minutes – they probably can get away with a little less light than someone who's off by an hour who needs a longer amount of light each day and more light to do the resetting. So that's a rough answer, but that's not exactly understood. And there's other, other inner individual differences that may cause, uh, differences to that answer. So, so that's part of the answer. The, the other question, uh, as far as, um, So maybe just to summarize that, you know, in your case where you have very little light perception, if you suspect that this is a problem, um, you know, with the exception of the Canadian issue, you know, I would suspect you may be eligible for the study where you can go in and say, I don't think I have enough light to keep me synchronized because it's very little light if I'm in a room. Uh, And the doctor can make the decision on whether to do the diagnostic step and see if you have uh, a, a body clock that's moving. So, so that's kind of that gray area of, of the no, of the total blindness. Uh, then the other question is what are things you can do? So if you do have light perception, the most important time is the light you get early in the morning and in the evening, kind of the, the, if you think about the light that comes during a normal day, it's that probably the first real hour of sunlight and the last real hour of sunlight that become, become those send the strongest signals. But there's a lot of intricacies to that, and a lot of things that can cause it to go off. You know, even things like sitting in front of a bright computer screen in the evening. You know, there's some people who think that the the society as a whole's body clock has shifted because of all the electric lights and lights that we have that are interfering with our body clock. now that hasn't been proven explicitly because, you know, we didn't have all the diagnostic tools 200 years ago to evaluate how people were then versus now. Um, so uh, you know, there's some suggestion that, that just the light, I mean, so definitely the light we get can be some of what can help. Uh, And the brightness of that light, there is a little bit of a dose effect with light. The brighter the light, the more it can shift the body clock. Um, So, But we don't know exactly how much you have to lose. And then then the others, you know, we we wish that there were other solutions, and especially if we talk about someone who doesn't have that light option at all. Um, But the reality is that... There are not um, – it's been pretty well studied. And if, you're, if your body clock is really close to the 24 hours, you can use things like social schedule and meals and exercise to help keep the body aligned. But it really can only do a couple minutes a day. So if you're off by more than a few minutes, those things are not going to be strong enough to keep you kind of locked in. and And you're going to kind of slip by and, and keep moving around the clock. So hopefully that helps –
0: Let's hope so. Uh, Howard is going to try again. So everybody back away. Howard, you're on. Okay, we don't hear him. Is there anyone else, especially someone who has not spoken? Just fire away here. Lean on the control. I'll back off, and let's see what happens.
2: Yes, I have something. As I have sleep apnea, I was not able to participate in your study. Would a board-certified sleep specialist be able to determine whether or not I have the 24-hour wake Condition or, or would there be anything that I could do to determine whether my body clock is okay or not? Oh, <laughs> um.
0: well, Leslie, let's let uh, uh, Willie answer the question, please. So,
1: so um, as far as you know, should would a board certified sleep physician be able to diagnose this? Um, Yes, most board-certified sleep physicians should know about this and be able to do some of the diagnosis, but, you know, I mentioned some of the problems earlier that, you know, a sleep diary is limited in exactly how good of a diagnosis it is, uh, it can do. So, and, and even in the sleep community, because this is a relatively rare problem, you know, so a lot of those doctors can be more focused on sleep apnea and some of the other things, and, you know they haven't done a lot of thinking about this beyond kind of the couple paragraphs they may have read in med school so I, I i'm you know i'm making a really broad general statement i might have some sleep doctor come get mad at me for a statement like that but most of them know about it in my experience but they don't necessarily recognize it on a daily basis they certainly don't see patients with it on a daily basis and so and, and there's also, just right now, the diagnostic tools that they have available to them aren't as good and definitive as they need. Um, you know, I think in the short term until, you know, we can get this, hopefully we can get this drug approved and and be out educating the doctors about it more. Uh, until that time, you know, I know the doctors, and they're actually involved in our study, but Dr. Lockley, who just did a seminars at Hadley event a couple weeks ago, Uh, and Dr. Hall, who works for him, Joseph Hall. I know those guys, they're on the Harvard Medical School uh, website, and they do take questions and help refer you to doctors that they know can help do the diagnosis. Um, So in the short term, that's something uh, that you can use them as a resource, and that was uh, Stephen Lockley and and Joseph Hall.
0: Okay, anyone else who has not spoken, please?
4: Does prematurity have anything to do with this kind of sleep disorder? Have you noticed anybody coming up that um, had trouble later in life um, or or when they were younger and, and they were premature and had had a lot of trouble with
1: sleep? So if by, by prematurity, if you mean the, the, the ROP, um, that is unfortunately one of the causes that you know, causes uh, the, the lack of light and, and uh, causes the non-24 hour. So if that was the question, then yes, um, many or most of the people with ROP have some level of this problem. Um,
3: uh, my name is Bonnie, and I'm curious to know, how much we are affected by a dream life we don't remember and whether there have ever been any studies done on people who don't remember dreams. I very, very rarely do. My mind is very active. I have a hard time turning it off. I sleep very well, I think. But I am curious as to know um, what studies have been done and if there's any research about the effect of not being able to remember dreams on a person Uh, i know that you i do realize you can dream without necessarily remembering dreams
1: so this is where we cross into some of the things that i'm definitely not a sleep expert on all counts uh and and i'm definitely not an expert on dreams the the little i know is that um as far as remembering dreams it's very normal not to remember dreams in fact most of the dreams we have uh people don't remember and a lot of whether you remember them or not depends on exactly when you wake up and in, rel- in relation to those dreams so you know as you get closer to the end of the night it's more likely that you're having a dream right before you wake up and if you wake up right from a dream or close to a dream i think it's more likely that you remember it as far as the content and the different things that uh dreams imply and and such there's definitely been tons of research on that um i think there's conflicting information you know there definitely dreams are one of the places where your memories are being stored so they tie in you know emotional things from the day get tied in with other emotional things from your past and that's where you can get some you know strange dreams after a, a tiring or emotional day but and a lot of that stuff is pretty well understood i don't know of like a great Uh, review article that kind of tells the whole story of what's known and what's not known. It's something that uh, maybe I'll try and look up, but you know, it's one of those things where if it hasn't been done, you know, we need a whole issue of scientific American that kind of covers everything that's been done at that kind of level of audience, I think would be a a nice article. Hopefully that helped.
0: You did. And I got to tell you when my sister was young, she could tell. Remember every dream. I used to call her Channel Seven because she went on and on for an hour on her dreams. Anyway, uh, one or two more questions for someone who hasn't spoken because the hour is growing late in the east. Um, so, who has a question, please?
5: I have a question. Um,
2: is there? Um, I live in South Florida, so is there a place near me where where um, I can sign up uh, for this? <laughs>
1: Yeah, so the, there are like I said there's about uh there's about 25 sites in the US and so they're pretty broadly uh covered around the country and even if you're not real close to one uh we may be able to provide transportation. So specifically for South Florida, we have sites uh one just outside of Tampa and the other one in Miami. Um, so uh certainly anywhere in the, the south uh, the south side on the east or west coast of Florida is is fairly accessible. Um, if you want, I can just real quickly run through the other sites. They're also available on the on the Vanda website uh, and on clinicaltrials.gov. But um, it's basically Washington D.C., Cincinnati, Atlanta, uh, Ann Arbor, Detroit, uh, uh, Philadelphia. Uh, and I want to just do them in order. So, uh, Chicago, Denver, New York, Pittsburgh, uh, St. Louis, Boston, Minneapolis, uh, Palo Alto, San Francisco area, uh, Daytona Beach, Miami, uh, Columbus, Ohio, Houston, uh, Phoenix, Dallas, San, uh, LA, Oklahoma City, Tampa, Columbia, South Carolina, um, South. Uh, Orange County, L.A., and uh, Portland, Oregon.
0: And, Francis, call one 389 389-7033. Last question, please, who has not spoken yet. Well, Willie, on behalf of Accessible World and our special program series, we want to thank you. You're really good. You really worked hard to prepare for this. We rehearsed a lot of correspondence. We salute Vanda for trying to make life better for blind people and getting a good night's sleep is a big step forward. We thank you so very much. Uh,
1: Again, thanks for having me. I hope I answered all the questions. Um, I'm sure you can go through Bob to get a hold of me uh, for any further questions, emails, uh, the easiest, and and Bob has that, and he's welcome to share it with anyone. Uh, As far as you know just kind of summary notes appreciate everybody's questions and 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 listening i hope you know there's definitely a lot of great questions this is an important topic that you know would ask for your help in spreading the word as well as consider for yourself and others to participate in the study to help us get this treatment out there um, the the couple things that i didn't mention that so the num- 888 number there's also uh, our survey you can do online, which is at 24 or I'm sorry, um, non 24 registry.com. Uh, so that's NON24 registry.com. Uh, so you can go there. You know, Google searches are, are pretty well indexing this now, so you can find it that way. Uh, and if you do have other people, either I think you said they are going to record this session, but I believe you also. Um, the the session that Dr. Lockley did a couple weeks ago at the seminars at Hadley, titled "Sleep Light and Your Body Clock," was also um, was also a good uh, a really good cover of the topic. That if you're you know somebody missed this, they can listen to that on the seminars at Hadley website. Uh, I see. I saw the question pop up: How long do you may, uh, remain in in the registry? And so that's it's totally up to you. So. Um, I believe, I'm not sure, they, they tell you that when you call in about how, what our policy is for maintaining the, the list, um, but you can call back at any time and, and ask to be taken out of it. Um, you, know, you can say, I'll take the registry, pass me to the research site, and then take me out of the registry. You can, take that, you can say that so you don't get called in the future if we're doing another study. Um, And you actually don't have to go straight to the registry. You can also call the research sites directly uh, in any of the cities I mentioned. And the best place to find that is either on the Vanda website on the page that talks about the clinical trial where it lists all the sites and their phone numbers, uh, or also on the clinicaltrials.gov site. If you search for Vanda and the study, you'll see a list of all the sites. Hope that's helpful. And uh, thanks again, everybody, for all the great questions.
0: Okay, and thank you again, Willie. Thank you, everybody, for coming. In two weeks, the 23rd, Ira Fistel again, our scholar on Mark Twain, a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's court. He does most of the work, and you'll enjoy it. He does a good job when we record those. Yeah, we ought to have thousands of hits on this program. Thank you very much for coming.